This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you tonight that your word is infinitely precious. Your spirit is infinitely precious. And tonight, I claim the precious power of your word and of your spirit to do a work through uh, the weak fumblings of a human being uh, that would be to your honor and glory, that would transform our lives according to your plan. pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Join me, please, if you would, in Colossians chapter 1. And tonight we're going to consider, continue considering the foundational truths that we find in this uh, epistle, this letter of Colossians. And I know this is a dangerous thing to say on the third message of a series, but I think that what we're going to consider tonight is probably the most vital of these truths that we're going to consider in this book. In a sense, this is actually the truth that serves as the foundation of the other foundational principles that we're going to consider. And really, I think this is at the heart of what is causing Paul to express what he does in this letter to this church in, or these Christians in Colossae. And as we go to this book together, I want to ask you uh, what, a question that perhaps we're not used to asking, but I think it's a valid question. What does anything having to do with a group of believers nearly 2,000 years ago in a city which is now in modern-day Turkey, what, does, what could that possibly have to do with what's going on in 21st century Chesapeake? How could anything being said to a group of believers way back then in a different culture have any bearing on our lives? And even more basic than that, as we think about this, as we think about these truths, um, I want to ask a deeper and even more philosophical question. And that is, what part could either a, a group of believers in the ancient Middle East or we who are gathered here tonight, a group of believers in modern-day Chesapeake, what could either one of those groups What kind of bearing could we have on the grand scheme of things? It's one of those basic questions of life uh, that we uh, we often consider. At some point in, in life, we'll all consider the question, what is my part in all of this? What is our part in all of this? All of all of what is going on in the world. How do I fit into this? Do I have any bearing on the grand scheme of things? And we are reminded from time to time of how small we are compared to this world, compared to this universe, compared even to the smaller community in which we live. And how could we possibly, what we're doing here tonight, what we do throughout this week, how could it possibly have any impact on the overarching story of history? Contrary to what many people believe, there is an overarching story of history. And we see that as we look at Scripture. You're familiar with it. Uh, Back in Genesis, the serpent shows up in the garden. Adam and Eve are there. He tempts uh, them. He tries to get them to rebel against God. 
He wants them to to separate from God. He wants to break that relationship. And for a time, it seems that he's succeeded. As Eve takes that forbidden fruit, she and Adam enter into that rebellion, and that, that relationship is broken. But as we know all through Scripture, the story continues. Satan continues to fight. He, he, he's trying to get the hearts of man. He's trying to get control. But God continues to pursue man. He continues to reveal himself to man. And all through scripture, he is at work. And we know as we get to the end and we look at the book of Revelation, eventually the serpent, Satan, he's going to be defeated completely forever. Christ is going to reign. And man, at least man who has been restored to relationship with God, will be forever free from rebellion and sin in all of eternity. It's a grand story. It's an epic story. And it's a story that we are in the middle of tonight. The story has begun, but it hasn't ended yet. So how can we be connected to that grand overarching scheme? How could we be playing our part into that? And you might say that's far too philosophical for me. Well, I'm sorry. But this is, these are these things we need to consider. Is my life nothing? Am I just going to be a little blip and then it's not really going to make a difference what I do or don't do? Well, tonight what we're going to look at in this book of Colossians is something that Paul shares, a truth that he shares that connects us and connects Colossi Baptist Church, if you will, to that grand overarching story. I'm sure they were independent Baptists, by the way. But how are they connected? How are we connected? And that's the theme of the message tonight. And it's one word, a powerful word, Christ. As Paul gets to this point, he's still in this, of course he wasn't writing in chapters, but he's still in this first chapter, and he's kind of laying things out to this church, and he brings up the importance of Christ. And we're going to get to a a specific truth about Christ that is really central here. But I, wanna, I want us to read through these verses and see, as Paul is talking about Christ to this church, see how he represents Christ, how he presents the truth about him. And we'll get to this key truth in just a little bit. So, as we're here in Colossians 1, we're going to consider verses 15 through 20 uh, tonight. And we're going to begin by looking at what makes Christ the central figure of all of human history. So I talked about that grand overarching theme, the story of all history. So what does Christ have to do with that? Well, we see the person of Christ. Um, let's, let's take a look at verse 15 together. Verse 15 says, Who is the image of the invisible God? If we back up, we know that he's talking about Christ here. He says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. So he calls Christ the image of the invisible God. Do you get the irony in that phrase? I love the way that he says that. Imagine that there's an artist who's being told to create a sculpture. He says, all right, I'm ready to go. I'm going to create the sculpture. What am I going to make the sculpture of? We say, well, here's your subject, but um, we don't know what it looks like. Fact is, nobody's ever seen your subject. And actually... Um, you might as well not even try to go see the subject because it's impossible for anyone to see. It's invisible. But you are tasked with creating an image 
of that invisible subject. Now, I think I know some artists that would be just crazy enough to try anyway. But we know that you can't see something that's invisible, and yet here he's saying Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the the representation visually of something that is impossible to represent visually. And he, he clarifies that Christ is not just a picture of God. Um, he calls him in verse 19, um, he says that it, it pleased God that in him should all fullness dwell. And he clarifies in Colossians 2.9 uh, that he's talking about the fullness of God. Colossians 2.9 says, In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So Christ is not only we're trying to do something to represent God. And by the way, mankind has tried that, and it's never went well. But Christ is the perfect image, but he's also the fullness of God. He is all of God with no parts missing. But he's not just the fullness of God. Paul also tells us he's the firstborn of every creature there in verse 15. So he, he does not just have the fullness of God, he has the fullness of man as well. These are familiar truths to us, but think about this. Christ is all of God and all of man. Is there anything like that in history besides Christ? Well, no. He is unique. He is like nothing else in all of the story of human history. And so we're beginning to see what makes Christ unique, what makes him great, what makes him uh, someone that is, is key to this, this overarching story. But moving on, I don't want to just look at the person of Christ. I want to consider with Paul the work of Christ. And I don't want to skim over these truths like they're unimportant, but Paul is building to something here. He lays out who Christ is. And then he goes on to talk about what Christ has done. First of all, we see that he has done the work of reconciliation. I actually want to back up to verse 14. Uh, we considered this last time, but he was talking here about the importance of giving thanks to God. And one of the things he's saying that they ought to be giving thanks to God for, and which he's giving thanks to God for, is in verse 14. It, it says that, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong chapter. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of of sins. He has done the work of redemption. He has paid for their sins. Um, verse 20, he says, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. We understand the idea of reconciliation. Two parties that were at odds being brought together. And if there's someone who's going to serve as a mediator, who's going to do that work of reconciliation, there's something really important that has to be true about that person. They need to be able to understand and connect with people on both sides. They need to be able to understand and connect with this party and understand and connect with this party so that we can find the middle ground and bring reconciliation. Paul's saying, in Christ, it's all the fullness of God, all the fullness of man, and he has done the work of reconciliation. 
bringing the two together. There was this, this enmity, there was this separation, which happened all the way back in the garden, and Christ is the only one that could go in between and could, could take the hand of God and take the hand of man and reconcile them through his work on the cross. And so he's done this work of reconciliation. Because of that, of course, these believers in Colossae realize we owe all to him because of that. He's done this work on our behalf. He has redeemed us. And so this connects Christ both to that, the, the, all of history, but also to this church in Colossae. And they say, yeah, he's our savior. He did the work of reconciliation for us. But that's not all he talks about. He's done the work of reconciliation, but he also talks about the work of creation. Verses 16 and 17, he says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Now, you might say this is a wonderful truth, but... Why would he bring this up at this point? Why is this significant in this conversation? Well, Paul is making a statement here about authority. You know, it's interesting, as he talks about the creation, when we talk about the fact that God has created all, or that Christ was involved in creation, and we start to list off the things he created, where do we go? Well, we talk about mountains, and we talk about the sky, and we talk about rivers and oceans and all of the beauty that surrounds us, and we're not wrong to do that, but what does Paul talk about? What has he created? Well, he said he's created all the visible things and the invisible things, and he talks specifically about people who are in charge. There's different ways of expressing this one central idea, but these are the kings, These are the prime ministers. These are the the dictators, the bosses. These are the ones with the nuclear uh, codes, the commanders of massive military forces, the dynamic leaders who have an army of loyal followers. That's who he's talking about here. And he uses four different ways of expressing that, but the idea is these are the people with power, with authority. These are the people that others look up to. And what does he say about Christ? Who made them all? Who is the one who gave them all their power? It's him. It's Christ. He didn't just create the world. He didn't just create all the things that we get to enjoy. He didn't just create all those things that we see listed in Genesis. But he is the one who is behind all those who have power and authority as well. And this is really significant because you think about this, if you, if you think about those in, in authority, Paul is saying here that the only authority that they have is derived authority. And we understand the idea of derived authority. If you think with me about a sheriff, and, and we could talk about the fact that a sheriff himself only has derived authority, but think about a sheriff. He's got the authority to... Um, to enforce the law. He, he can do certain things as the sheriff that other people can't do. But the sheriff can decide that he is going to give some of that authority to someone else. He may choose to call a deputy. <laughs> I'm glad you're with me tonight. 
the deputy doesn't have any authority of his own. He's not allowed to take the bullet out of his pocket unless the sheriff says he can. But we get the idea. It's not his authority. He doesn't get to call the shots himself. Any authority he has, anything he gets to do, it's been given to him by the sheriff. It is derived authority. Paul is saying that's the story with all the authority of the whole world. Every king out there, everyone sitting on a throne, everyone who thinks he's calling the shots, everyone who's telling everyone else what to do, the only authority they have is derived from Christ. That is a powerful truth. He is the one who has authority over every earthly authority bearer. And as if that weren't enough, Paul says in verse 17, that Christ is before all things, and by him all things consist. And that word before all things is exactly what we would think it means. He comes before. He is pre-everything. So there is nothing that goes on that precedes God, that precedes Christ, that beats him to the punch. He is before it all. It's all under his control. It's all under his understanding. And all of it, he says, consists through him. All of it is held together by him. There is no authority out there that's, that's not under Christ. There's nothing that goes on that's outside his control. There's nothing that can keep itself going without his power. That's what Paul is saying about Christ. So do you get the picture here? It's like we see in the book of Revelation. You, you line up all the authority, all the power, everything that any human being can do. You line up all the, the powerful human beings in our world. Those who have a political authority, those who have the biggest bank accounts, those who can, can reach the most people with their messages. You line them all up. And he's saying Christ is over all of them. There is a higher throne. He reigns over it all because he created it all and he keeps it all going. There's a story that I love in the book of Ezra. Uh, Ezra, he's this, this Jewish scribe and he's helping to lead this group back to Jerusalem from Babylon. And they're getting ready to go. They've gotten their team together. They're ready to make the journey to Jerusalem. And Ezra calls on everyone in that group to fast. He calls on them to spend some time abstaining from food and calling out to the Lord for a very specific reason. And I can't say it any better than Ezra did, so I'm just going to read his words from Ezra chapter 8. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. But his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our Lord for this, and he was entreated of us. Ezra is saying... They're getting ready to make this journey. And they're traveling as, they're, they're not a military force. These are just people who are, who are heading back to Jerusalem. And normally you'd want to have some protection along. And he had the opportunity. He could have gone to the king and said, 
I need a detachment of soldiers to protect us as we make this journey. Because there are bad people out there. There are people that could try to attack us. They could try to steal our stuff. And we don't want that to happen. We want to have a good journey. And so, King, could you give us some protection? Ezra says he didn't want to do that for a very specific reason. Because Ezra wanted everyone to understand that there is someone who had more power than that king. There was someone who was more able to protect them than that king and his army. And Ezra said, I know him. And we can call on him, and he can give us far better protection than the king and his armies ever could. And I want this trip to be a testimony to the power of God, to the authority of God, to the fact that God is greater than any king. Ezra understood that, and he put it into practice here, and God rewarded that, and he blessed that. But that's the truth we're talking about. We really have trouble thinking that way. But Paul is saying, here's the reality about who Christ is. He is fully God and fully man. He made it all. He holds it all together. He has done the work of reconciliation. He has done the work of creation. He is the redeemer and he is the ruler. But Paul has said all of this and he's still building to something with this. As he talked about who Christ is and what Christ has done, he's he's using all of this to lay this foundation for this principle that we find in verse 18. And that is the position of Christ. Verse 18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Paul introduces us to this vital subject, and I want to say that this subject is at the heart of everything we find in this book. And really, I could argue everything we find in all of the epistles. And that is the truth that Christ is the head of the church. How important is your head to you? Uh, think about, with me, how, how reflexively we protect our heads. So if, if you're you know, just going on along, along your life and all of a sudden, bang, something right next to you. You hear this loud sound. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to jump like you just did. But you're also, you're also probably going to do this. It's not going to be a, a thought. You know, you're not going to think, well there may have been something that exploded right next to me. And it may send shrapnel in my general direction, and I'm going to... No, it's a, it's a reflex. You're going to try to protect your head. If you, are, if you trip and you're falling, what part of your body are you most concerned about protecting in that moment? You're reflexively going to be doing everything you can to keep your head from being the part of your body that hits the ground. You're going to use your arms, you're going to shift your body, whatever you need to do, we reflexively protect that part of our body. And why is that? Why are our heads so important to us? Well, you say, have you seen this? I want to, I want to protect it. <laughs> well, obviously there's some important things going on up there, all right? If you think about it, four of our five senses... Um, the way that those, those stimuli come in is through our head. But more importantly than that, 
And the reason that our head is so important to us more than any other reason is because inside there is our brain. Our brain is so important, it's so important that our brain is protected that God built a helmet into our heads around our brain. It's really vital. It's really important. There is no part of our body that is more vital than our head. There are other things that are that without them we also die, but you can't live without a head. What a vivid picture Paul is using as he seeks to express the importance of Christ's position. Think about the head and the work that the head does. Our head, our brain, is our control center. Our brains are the center of how we perceive and respond to the world around us. Consider your senses. What part of your body do you use to see? Well, your eyes. What part of your body do you use to hear? Your ears. To smell, your nose, to taste your mouth, your tongue, uh, to feel all over, but specifically your hands we think of as associated to feeling. And none, all of that is, is right, it's correct, but one part of this we don't often think about is that the perception of those things actually has to do with what's going on up here. You don't just see with your eyes, you also see with your brain. Our brain tells us what we think we see or hear. Let me give you an example. Consider this optical illusion. I don't know how well this will work over a screen. But if you shift your eyes, you may just have to look at it, or you may have to shift your eyes back and forth, but you'll see motion in that pattern. Is that picture moving? Well, I, I, I guess I know because I put the slideshow together. But no, it's not. There's no motion actually happening there. But your brain is looking at it, and there are things going on there, and your eyes are sending this input, and your brain is telling you, that's moving. But it's not. Because your brain is telling you how to perceive the world. And we've all had these optical illusions, and sometimes they're fun, and we can get our brains to believe they're seeing something that they're not really seeing. But that just tells us that up here, this is telling us how we perceive the world. This is telling us what's going on around us. It's telling us reality, or sometimes not reality, about what we see and hear and smell and taste and touch. Your head, your brain, is the center of how you perceive the world. Think about that in relation to Christ. As the head, Christ is to be the center of perception. So the things that are coming into us from the world, we are, as, as Scripture says elsewhere, to bring every thought into captivity to Christ. It's all going to the head. For the head to decide the truth about what's going on around us. Christ is the head. And as the head, he's the center of our perception of the world. He's the one who's giving the judgment about what's going on in our lives and what we ought to do about it, and what we ought to think about it, 
how we ought to respond to it. I don't care how smart you are or how educated you are, how good you are at synthesizing information. None of us can say about any decision or any process that we understand it all. We've considered all the variables. That we have a complete knowledge of every consideration that has to do with that decision. That could drive us crazy sometimes. We say, I want to know it all. I want to to know every variable of this so I can make the right decision. Well, guess who knows every variable? The head. And so we take it all to him and, and we let him make the judgments about what's going on. Because he sees and understands things that we don't. The head is the center of perception. It's the control center. But also think about it this way. As the control center, it also gives orders and coordinates our actions. So think with me about the simple act of walking. For most of us, we've been walking for quite a while. And it's, it's not usually a challenge for us. But if you think about the different things that are going on when you're walking, there are a lot of different things that are involved. Your muscles are involved. Muscles all through your legs are involved in that act of walking. Say I want to take a step down these steps. We think of it as just one motion. I'm just going to take a step. But involved in that are the muscles of my legs, the touch as I hit the step and know how to shift my weight in response to that, my inner ear, and the balance that I need to maintain as I'm taking that step down, if any of those things is out of whack, it makes a difference, doesn't it? Think about if my body, if my muscular system, and my inner ear, and my nervous system were independent systems, and they didn't have a way to communicate with each other, and I try to take a step down, How well do you think that would go? But they're all communicating with the head. And because they're all communicating with the head, the orders they're getting from the brain, and those things are going back and forth faster than we can know, those orders coming down from the brain are guiding my body so that I can do what seems like a simple action, but there's a lot going on, but I can do it successfully. Because everything is communicating with the brain the way it's supposed to. And this is a really powerful concept to me. And I think that this is really at the heart of what Paul's getting at here. The head coordinates the body. Think about it in the context of the work of God. So we've got a Christian over here. And this Christian is doing something for the Lord. And we've got a Christian over here. And this Christian is doing something for the Lord. And this Christian over here is doing something for the Lord. And this Christian over here is doing something for the Lord. And perhaps these Christians are in different places. They may or may not know each other. They may have, uh, there may not be direct communication happening between these four Christians. But if each, four of those, each of those four Christians are communicating with the head, he can coordinate the actions. And we've all heard stories of how God has put things together in these amazing ways and we say, that is incredible. Yes, it is, because if we're communicating with the head, he can coordinate that all. He can work it together in ways that are beyond our imagination. 
But that's what the head is supposed to do. The head coordinates the body and uses what all the different members are doing together to accomplish his work. This is really, like I said, I think at the heart of what he means when he says that Christ is the head of the church. He is the one making the calls. He is the one coordinating what's going on. But consider the fact that he says he's not just the head. And so it is important that you and I are communicating with the head. But he says he's the head of the church. This is vital. The fact that this is connected to the church. Again, if we think about this in, in, in terms of a body, and you say we've got a hand over here that is not concerned about the body, but just wants to communicate with the head. Well, there's a problem. Because a hand is only going to do what it ought to do as it is a part of the whole body. It relies on the other parts of the body. It needs to work together with the other parts of the body. A hand by itself is not a body. Paul expresses throughout his letters the importance of this principle. That Christ is overseeing the church together as one body. So these believers in Colossae need to be viewing themselves together with each other as one body. He talks to the church in Ephesus in chapter 4, and he, he expresses his desire to these Christians that they be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness wherein they lie in wait to deceive. He's saying, I want you to be firm. I want you to be established. I don't want you to be blowing back and forth all over the place. But then he says, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things. So he says, I want you to be firmly founded. I want your roots to be deep so you can grow into Christ. But then he says, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. He's saying Christ is the head, and as the head, he is working to bring the body together, to make more with two than just one plus one, to bring all the Christians together, to make of that something great, something for his glory, and by, the, by what each of those joints supplies, what each member of the body gives, he makes something out of that. That is God's desire for the church. That as we are together under him, we can do his work as a good body would. So the fact that Christ is the head makes it necessary for us to consider the fact that we're part of a body. And Paul really leans into this imagery, and he helps us to think about this this principle. We're under the head, and we're the whole body joined together. So back to Colossians 1, verse 18, he says there, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So he talks about preeminence here. 
he says that Christ is to have the position of preeminence. Notice the titles here in this verse. He's the head, he's the beginning, he is the firstborn. These are all words of preeminence, of being the first in importance, the first in authority. He says Christ needs to have the preeminence. He has and he deserves that first place, the highest position of authority and honor. And that is so important. Because consider what happens in a church where Christ is not preeminent. A church might have this sense of being together and even working together, but if Christ is not preeminent, if he is not the one in the position of greatest honor and authority, it makes for something that can turn ugly in a number of ways. So a church that becomes a personality cult, it's all about this certain leader, this certain person, And that's what the church is about. That person has the preeminence. And without that person, there is no church. Well, that's not a church where Christ has the preeminence. What about a church where it's a group of people, a a homogenous group, everybody is the same, everybody looks at life the same, everybody has the same background, everybody agrees about everything. Is that a healthy church? Is that a church where Christ is preeminent? No, that's where my ideology or or the things that we like, that we share in common, that's preeminent. That's what makes this church what it is. If Christ is preeminent, that's not what the church is going to look like. And we could go on with more examples, but we have to be so careful of this. A church that is no longer concerned about orthodox doctrine. They're no longer really worried if the Bible actually says that or not. Is that a church where Christ is preeminent? Much of what Paul talks about in this letter has to do with how the body ought to function. But none of that can be right. No Christian can can do what they ought to do. No church can operate in the right way, either individually or, or within the body. None of that can happen without this truth, this understanding, that I am part of a body and Christ is the head of the church. It's a simple truth, but this is at the heart of what makes Christianity in this church age what it needs to be. I am in the body, and Christ is the head of the body. If we get this, it's going to be very transformative. And we will find that in a number of specific ways as we move on in the book of Colossians. But I just want to share a few tonight. First of all, this is going to have an impact on, it's going to say something about the purpose of the church. As his body, that makes the purpose of the church carrying out the wishes of Christ, doing the work he has left us here to do. It's not about meeting my needs or making me happy. It's about carrying out the work that Christ the head has given us to do. That also tells us why it's important that we be a member of the church. 
that Christianity is not just about doing my own thing over here. Christ has a very specific purpose for the church. And I need to get in on that. It is his body. And I need to be a part of what he's doing through his body. It also says something about the work of the church. So why is it that we would do things in a certain way? Why is it that we would keep certain things central to what we do? Why is it that we would use a certain kind of music? Why is it that we would choose to be a, have this meeting at our church and not have this meeting? Why is it that we choose to be a part of this event and not be a part of this event? Why is it that we would choose to, to place an emphasis on this ministry, but we're not going to engage in, in this other idea for ministry? All of these things are going to be informed by something. And they need to be informed by the fact that Christ is the head of the church. Again, we're not here to make ourselves happy. We're here to do the work that Christ has given us to do. And that's going to make a difference in what we do and in how we do it. It's also going to impact the way that we think about and treat each other as members of the church. So again, this is not going to be according to my preferences. I am not here because I like you. Now, I like you guys. I really do. (laughs) But I'm not here because I just think, you know, oh, man, these are such great people. I want to be around them. That may be true, but that's not why I'm here. That's not why I'm a part of Good News Baptist Church. I'm not here because we have similar interests or because we share hobbies, because we like reading the same books, or because we like watching the same shows, or because we have similar backgrounds, or because we have similar political leanings, or because we have similar personal habits, or similar life experiences. That's not why I'm here. And I hope that's not why you're here. It's not because we share preferences about life. None of that can be the tie that binds me to you and you to me and all of us to each other. None of those things is strong enough and none of those things is sufficient to tie us together and make us the body we need to be. The tie that binds us together is Christ. We are male and female, different ages, different appearances, different cultural heritages, different educations, different experiences, and we're joined together and we find an inseparable bond in Christ. And the only thing that ought to be able to break that bond is if something happens to Christ. And Christ is not going to change. And so it tells us the way that we treat each other as, as, as members, the way we view each other, whether or not that is really the bond that's holding us together or whether it's something lesser. This is a challenge to me to think about what it is that is my responsibility to each of you as fellow members in this church, not because I'm on pastoral staff, but because we are all members of the body together. What is my responsibility to you? How, I, how ought I view you? How ought I treat you and speak to you based on the fact that we as the church are the body of Christ. 
The fact that Christ is the head of the body, of which you and I are members, ought to transform the way we communicate, the way we disagree, the way we serve together, the way we pray for and with each other. Our job together is to obey the head, Jesus Christ. So Christ is the head of the church, and we need to each rely on him for discernment and for direction. We need to recognize the nature and purpose of the church as his body. We need to adopt the right attitude towards the others who are in the body. Your brain produces a chemical called dopamine. And if you've heard much talk about the brain, you've probably heard mention of dopamine. And we, we often associate it with um, uh, pleasure responses to certain things. But it also serves, among other things, another purpose. And that is, it communicates with our bodies and helps us with motion. Helps us with our physical motion. The brain uh, communicating with the rest of the body about how we're going to move. And there's a specific part of the brain that, that creates dopamine that can become affected and the, 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 that part of our brain, the cells in that part of our brain can begin to die. When that happens, no longer, as, as time goes on and more and more of those cells die, less dopamine is being created by that part of our brain and less of that communication is happening and our motor skills begin to deteriorate. That's what happens in a disease called Parkinson's disease. Uh, My grandmother had Parkinson's disease before she passed away. And anyone who, if you've known someone who has Parkinson's disease, it's really hard to watch. Because as time goes on, someone who has been very physically able... As time goes on, their ability to do things, their, their motor skills begin to deteriorate more and more to the point where they, they can't walk on their own anymore. Simple tasks need to be done for them. Uh, they begin to have trouble even speaking as time goes on. It's a, really, it's a sad thing to watch. It's a, it's a devastating disease. And running the danger of over, oversimplifying, though, if you think about Parkinson's, what is the issue? What is at the heart of this? Well, it's a failure in communication. No longer is the brain communicating with the body the way that it's supposed to, and the results are devastating. And I hope the application is clear. If we are not communicating with the head the way that we need to, if we're not taking orders from him together the way that we need to, the results will be devastating. But when we, each individually and together as the church, take our orders from the head and obey what he wants us to do, together we can take a step down the stairs. Together we can run a marathon. Together we can do whatever it is that God wants us as the body of Christ to do. But we've got to be together as a body and we've got to be taking our orders from the head. I hope you understand with me tonight the vitality of this truth and how this is the center of everything we find in this book. Christ is the head of the church. Let's pray together. Our Father, I thank you so much for this wonderful truth.
Thank you that we don't have to figure it out on our own. We don't have to try to come up with great strategies that are going to accomplish your work, uh, all in our own power. We don't have to figure out every variable. We don't have to consider every little thing that could happen. Where that's beyond our power, it's beyond our ability, uh, but it's also not our responsibility, and we thank you for that. Lord, instead, we just need to be simply obeying the head. And Father, you will lead us to plan, to, to put things together, to try to accomplish things for your glory. But Father, we recognize that all of it is nothing if it's not coming from you. And yet, even the smallest things can be great things for you if they are under your direction. Father, help us with this truth tonight. Help us individually to surrender to you, to be willing to give up the reins to the one who is the king over all kings, the one who has all authority, the one who understands all. And Lord, help us commit to be the part of the body we need to be. Lord, help us here at Good News to be the body of Christ here in Chesapeake that you want us to be. We love you. We thank you for these truths. Thank you for the wonder of who Christ is. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened. And we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.